you're listening to the Whitewater Podcast. First off, we just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoy what you hear today, please subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast. If you want to support what Whitewater is doing, you can go to whitewaterchurch.org give or click on give in the show notes. Let's dive into this week's message together. Well, good morning, Whitewater Church. My name is Kevin. I'm going to be giving the message for today. Simon Sinek, in his book, Start With The Why, shows that vision is the reason why the Wright brothers succeeded in being the first to build an airplane that could actually fly. Now, what you probably don't know is there was another person that was building an airplane right around the same time, but none of us know his name. His name was Samuel Langley. And he was described as being a person who was armed with every ingredient for success. And he really should have been the name that we remember as building the first airplane that could fly, as opposed to the Wright brothers. Langley, he was a professor at Harvard University. He was a senior officer at the Smithsonian. He was granted 50,000 dollars from the War Department, which in today's, you know, dollars is in the millions, he assembled a world-class team of very educated and brilliant minds. And he had all the ingredients that conventional wisdom would have said, man, you are going to nail it and you are going to succeed. But we don't remember his name. It's the Wright Brothers. Now, the Wright brothers had everything going against them. They didn't have a team of the most brilliant minds. Actually, nobody on the Wright brothers' airplane team even had college education. They didn't receive all this money from the government. They were self-funded by whatever revenues came from their bicycle shop. On top of that, they just had grit and determination. So the Wright brothers, they were less educated, less funded. They didn't have as much media exposure than Langley did, but yet they were the first to succeed. Why? They had vision. And not only did they have vision, but they had a supporting why behind the vision of it all. You see, both Wright and the Langley team, they were highly motivated They were both very goal-oriented. They actually had the same um, goal. But at the end, what prevailed was a strong sense of vision connected to the why. Now, we don't have time, and this is obviously not a sermon about Wright Brothers and their why. So you can read Cynics' book. But really, it was all about was the Wright Brothers, they were able to empower and lift their team to this grand vision And they had a deep sense of the why. When we understand vision and we connect it to the why, something powerful can emerge from that. We've been in a series called Spirit Led. And it's been about a series where God empowers or how God empowers his people to accomplish his purposes and his work. And so today what we're going to be looking at is God's grand vision. Not a new vision, but a grand vision that starts all the way from creation that climaxes in the book of Revelation. And we're going to be looking at the why behind it. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, 
verses 1 through 11. This is the Pentecost story that many of you are familiar with. When Pentecost Day arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound from heaven like a howling of a fierce wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be individual flames of fire alighting each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Now, there were pious or really religious Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. When they heard the sound, a crowd gathered. They were mystified because everyone heard them speaking in their own native languages. And they were surprised and amazed, saying, Hey, look, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? In other words, aren't they just common folk? Every one of them? Then how can each of us hear them speaking in our own languages? Right? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, as well as the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygeria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the regions of Libya bordering Cyrene, and visitors from both Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the mighty works of God in our own languages. And they were all surprised and bewildered, and some asked each other, what does this mean? And others jeered at them, saying, they're full of new wine, or they're drunk. In order for us to really appreciate what's happening here, rather than just seeing this as a mystical experience that was extraordinary, we have to look at biblical history to build context. Now, what's happening here is God uses an event, sound of like a mighty rushing wind, to gather the community's attention. Several years back, it was around 9 o'clock in the morning, it was on a weekday, and I heard this loud screeching noise. It's almost like, you know, a, a car that has really poor brakes that's really trying to stop, just screeching, 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 and then boom, boom, boom. Went outside and I couldn't see, but I could tell it was, it was, it was kind of further south. And I live in DuPont, turn on the TV and find out that it was the train that derailed and that crashed over I-5. You know, anytime there is some really loud noise outside, natural human curiosities to go out and to see what's happening. The same thing is happening here in Acts chapter 2. They hear what's like a mighty rushing wind sound. And people come and they find this house where all the noise is coming from, and they begin to wonder what's happening here. People from all different nations come to witness and to experience that something extraordinary is happening here. And what they hear is people, these common people, called Galileans, ordinary Joe Schmoes, coming and speaking of God's wonders and his glories in other people's languages. Something radical is happening at this point. And so in order to really appreciate that, we've got to go back and rewind and go back to creation to see what all this is about, because this isn't a new thing. 
This is actually a continuation of God's grand vision. Now, the means are different, but the vision has remained the same. So what is going on here? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. And then he gives this command, this cultural mandate to Adam and Eve. Do you remember what it was? It was, I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply, and I want you to master everything in the earth, and I want you to go fill the earth until the ends of the earth in all the places. That was God's grand vision, right? And theologians give what's happening here the title, the cultural mandate, right? And this word culture is derived from the Latin, which basically means to cultivate. Adam and Eve and human beings were given this command to cultivate. Cultivate the things that God has given and the things that are around them. And notice, at this point in history, there were no nations, there were no ethnic groups, there were no different races, there was only one. It was the human race. But what God wanted in His vision was that his people would continue to multiply and scatter and to fill all parts of the world and developing culture with new languages, with new histories, with new perspectives, and for them to come together and in their own individual and unique ways to worship God, to declare how amazing, how wonderful, how mighty he is. And so when you look at what's happening in Acts chapter 2, don't look at it as a new thing, but rather as a continuation of God's grand vision of what he set forth in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, as you're reading this story of Acts chapter 2, you may, in the back of your mind, think about another story that happened in the Old Testament. And that was a story that was actually kind of opposite of what's happening with the disciples here. That was the Tower of Babel found in Genesis chapter 11. And let me read just, I guess, parts of it. And here's what's happening. All the people of the earth had one language and same words. And when they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And each said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them hard. And they used bricks for stones and asphalt for motor. And they said, Come, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And let's make a name for ourselves so that it won't be dispersed all over the earth. You see what's happening here? They're going against God's grand vision. And one of the things you don't do is go against God's vision because God will always bless his desires, and his will. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, There is now one people and they have one language, and this is what they have begun to do. And now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. So come, let us go down, mix up their languages so they won't understand one another. And so God disperses them, confuses their language. Maybe traditionally, one of the ways to kind of understand this text was, man, God is just ticked off. And so what he's doing, he's coming down and he's cursing the people and he's confusing their languages. Certainly that's one way to interpret that. But if you connect it to what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2 with the cultural mandate, you actually see something different. That God is actually, he's intervening in human history 
to reset what humans have messed up and to get them once again on board with his grand vision of all nations, all races, all peoples, all languages, filling all the earth, coming together and worshiping him in their own unique cultural ways and identities. So I thought that was really interesting. And so now when we get to Acts chapter 2, remember I said before that this is not something new per se, but yet this is a continuation. That's exactly what's happening. Jesus, when he clears out the temple because they're selling things at crazy prices and so poor people can't really afford it and they're being outed to provide proper sacrifices and to be able to pray and to worship God. Jesus goes and he turned overturns a table. And do you remember what he says in Mark chapter 11, verse 14, 17? Remember, Jesus has the same heart as his father. And he says, hasn't it been written? My house would be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus has the same vision. And so when he looks at the gathering place and the people of God, he sees a place that's filled with ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, people with different perspectives coming together with the single focus of communicating, knowing, and worshiping God. And so here in Acts chapter 2, what God is doing is once again, he's intervening into human history to reset his heart, his vision. And he's given these common people the ability through the Holy Spirit to speak in other people's languages, thus signifying all the barriers, all the walls that were erected by you guys, now through my spirit, is now torn down. So now go into all the world, go into all the earth, and bring all people, teaching them, discipling them to know who I am. Because what God really wants is he wants a diverse family with rich, rich life experiences to come and to share and to testify how good he is. Diversity is a gift that is unleashed when the Holy Spirit empowers Jesus' followers. Now, every week I get together with an interdisciplinary team with my hospice co-workers. We have a doctor, we have a nurse, we have a social worker, and we have chaplain. And when we talk about patients, we talk about them from our own individual experiences and disciplines. And boy, I'm telling you, when we do that, something rich really emerges. A few years ago, I was called to go to one of the hospitals because one of the patients had switched over onto hospice care. Patient probably had two or three days to live, was actively dying. They were an Asian family, um, Southwest, Southeast Asian family, and they were Buddhist. And you can hear in the back of the background music was um, Buddhist chants. I was like, this is cool. This is very interesting. So I went there and the spouse was there just praying, just praying. You know, I didn't really know what to do because there was English, there was a barrier. So I called the son who was the power of attorney. And as I was talking to the son, the son was like, yeah, you know, we don't really don't know what you can offer, but you know, my mom is really sad and she doesn't want to see my dad go. And so we just kind of ended it there. And I, and I talked with the nurse and the nurse says, hey, you know, here's what's going on with the family. Mom does not want dad to have any pain meds. And obviously he's not comfortable. 
And the son, who's the POA, is not going to make the decision because he's deferring to the mom. I went back, called the son, and just tried to understand a little bit what was going on from their cultural perspective. And then, boom, it hit. Because I had this experience also because of my own ethnic heritage, I was able to understand that the reason why the son didn't really feel like he had much power was because it's a hierarchical kind of society where the elders really have much of the say-so. So although legally it wasn't the mom, it was him, in all authority, it was his mom. The mom didn't want to hasten the dad's death by pain medication because she wanted him to just to hang on for about 12 more days where there was a new lunar moon, um, which symbolically represented the day that Buddha was born. And she wanted him to die on that day or later so that she could receive all that blessing. So I was able to take that and tell the rest of the care team about that. And guess what happened? All of a sudden, their compassion and their appreciation towards the family just increased tenfold. They spoke with him a lot with more compassion, with understanding, and explained to the son. And through some negotiation, finally, they were able to get the pain meds and the patient died a couple days later. That's what happens when you have people with different life experiences, different trainings, different perspectives coming together and sharing their thoughts. Something rich emerges. If everybody was a chaplain, could you imagine the discussion? It'd be pretty vanilla. It wouldn't be that exciting. But when you have people from all different walks of life, something special emerges. And here's what Jesus wants. He wants the community of faith to be empowered by the Spirit to cross racial and ethnic boundaries, to take risks, so that we can grow the kingdom with many, many, many different types of people. Why? Here's the why. God wants to see the ends of the earth filled with all types of people. Why? Because when people can come together from various life experiences, perspectives, thoughts, something special emerges. I never saw God that way. Oh my gosh, you just blew my mind. Like, God is like that? Yeah, yeah. And then there's a synergy effect, right? Where the Holy Spirit and fire, wind and fire come together. There's combustion where it's like, wow, God is even better than I realized before because of you, because of your perspective. And so what God wants is outlined in Revelation 7, 9. John has his vision of the end of life and his division I looked and there was a great crowd that no one could number. Woodstock, nothing compared to that. They were from every tribe, every nation, every people, and every language. And they were standing before the Lamb and before the throne, praising Him. That's what John sees. That's his vision of the end of life. It's everyone coming together and fulfilling God's grand vision. And so Whitewater Church... As God empowers us with His Spirit, as He empowers our church with His Spirit, we will become more and more and more and more diverse. And as a result, our worship and our understanding of God becomes more and more rich and dynamic. What is our part in all of this, right? Some of you guys are like, what do I need to do, right? I'm a why guy. Some of you are like, I'm a what guy or what woman. So here's what you can do as you're a spirit-filled person. Three L's. Listen, learn, and love. So in order for you to join the spirit in breaking down barriers and helping communities to become more diverse, number one thing is you need to learn how to listen. 
Listening not so that you can respond and say, ah, I get you, but listening to really understand where a person is coming from. Why? Because many people of diverse backgrounds and ethnic roots spend a majority of their lives never feeling like they truly understand or are being understood. And when you create a moment and space where you're really listening and listening with deep empathy, oh, it creates trust. And from that, a relationship begins to build. Listen. Number two, learn. And if you're presented with some new experiences and new facts that challenge your pre-existing beliefs, change, right? You learn from the other person and you change and say, wow, I didn't know that before. That's what happens in spirit-filled communities is that there's always repentance. I'm going to change. I'm going to change for the better, change for what's more biblical, change for what's more honoring to Jesus. And lastly, you love people. You love people because when you go through that experience of really listening to them and you're changing because they're presenting you with new truths, you want to put your arm around them. You want to eat with them. You want to stand up for them. You want to advocate for them. You want to just live life with them and you're loving them. Those are the things that you and I can do as we partner and join with the Holy Spirit. Thanks again for joining us this week. At Whitewater, we believe in creating an environment where you can belong before you believe. If you want to learn more about who we are and what we believe in, visit us at our website, whitewaterchurch.org. If you'd like to contribute to Whitewater financially, you can give online at whitewaterchurch.org give. Or if you want to get involved in blessing our communities or are interested in joining a home church, email us at info at whitewaterchurch.org. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.